Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Namihi nui and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Alison Balance tēnei. Later tonight, we've got more news about Kakapo. But first up, producer Sonia Sly is in search of the New Zealand accent and how it's changing over time. She's also discovering how bad words can get a makeover and become part of everyday language. Kia ora and welcome. I'm Sonia Sly, and in this episode, I'm looking at the words we can or can't say and why but also more subtly, the way we sound, as Kiwis, and how that's something that also changes over time. I headed out on a sunny lunchtime down Lampton Quay in Wellington with a picture in my hand. But can you identify what's in the top picture? A pint of beer. Beer. I'd say that's beer. 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 Um, Beer. 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 Young women in particular um, are well known as leaders of sound change. Emeritus Professor Janet Holmes is a sociolinguist from the School of Linguistics and Applied Sciences up at Victoria University in Wellington, and she's also the Associate Director of a project based around language in the workplace. Many years ago, people made a distinction between a glass of beer and a bear in the zoo. And what about the bottom? A beer. Beer. Bear. 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 <laughs> but nowadays, if you say... I saw three beers. It could be three animals or it could be three glasses of alcohol. Every word that has ear and air in it. Fear and fair, steer and stare. The whole of the sound system changed. Do you think it's more of a New Zealandism? It's very much a New Zealand feature. And that change in New Zealand was led by young women. Hang on. So if women were leading the charge in sound change... Is it because they are subconsciously or even unconsciously establishing a new identity as modern women? Or is it something else? Possibly unconsciously wanted to distinguish themselves from older people, from British people. That would be a reasonable thing to to want to be different. Young people were beginning to change. And people in Canterbury, Elizabeth Gordon, Margaret McLagan, did the same. They collected data from young people in school and they found that the young women were merging the two sounds fastest. Why and how would that happen? Very good question. Women are particularly sensitive, perhaps, to the significance of the way they sound. They're very aware of the fact that people judge them 
and their social and regional background by the way they sound. That's one theory, that they're tuned into sound as an interesting way of signalling their social status, their regional status, the New Zealand status and so on. But there are a lot of different features of New Zealand English that set us apart. And I'm pretty sure you'll recognise these Kiwiisms. Another one would be the sound in a word like fish, which in New Zealand sounds like fush. But in Australia sounds fish. Fish. So that's another example of something that's a distinctively New Zealand sound. Again, as far as we can tell, women tended to lead that change towards the centralisation, we call it, of the I sound towards a. But there's also social factors, and so you always have to think, do we want to distinguish ourselves from Australians? Do we want to distinguish ourselves from British people? And that's one possible explanation. I just wonder what it says about women if we look at the idea that women also like to be inclusive and to engage others, Mm -hmm. how that kind of correlates to (laughs) the idea of instigating that There are lots of different ways in which you can do those things, though. You can do it through uh, the words you choose, through the grammatical structures you choose, like the tag question. Adding words like, doesn't it? Or isn't that right? Or what do you think of that at the end of the sentence? The New Zealand feature A, really good A, Mm. which is a very distinctive New Zealand thing. Those are ways of including people. And people are more conscious of those ways of, of using language. People are not usually aware of the fact that sound change is going on. They're puzzled when you talk about it. As a sociolinguist, Janet's very interested in why sound change occurs and what drives it. So why does it happen? Internal pressure from the system itself mm. and social factors. Which social factors are important and why is a really interesting question. Is it a, a positive thing you know, to look at women and to say, actually, we have more of an impact on society and how it moves? <laughs> I'd say, yes, it's really interesting that women lead sound change. And not in all societies. You know, There are differences in different societies. And again, context matters, which social background people come from and so on. But yeah, I see it as something indicative of innovation and openness to novelty and to new things, a willingness to take a lead. I mean, none of these things would be conscious. But you can say, yeah, it shows that young women have an influence, however unacknowledged by most of society, on the way people speak. So when and how does our language change? And why is it that some words are simply not acceptable? For example, uh, the F word. It rhymes with luck. Nothing about the sound is offensive, but the associations are with uh, sexual activity and therefore it's, it's used negatively as an aggressive word. How do you feel about the F word? I think it's a fantastic word. If it's used quite casually, I'm not bothered, but when the tone is quite aggressive, that can put me on edge. And you say under your breath? Yeah, and it's usually to myself. It's not directed at anyone. The F word is versatile. (laughs) Dynamic, yeah. Is it something that you've ever used in the workplace before? Yes. Yeah, yes. Yes? And where do you work? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's increasingly used in middle-class office environments, that's right. People say it's totally... It was effing awful. And they mean it was really, really awful. It's just like another adjective, another adverb. But if you got somebody new to that workplace who wasn't familiar with that way of talking, then they could well be offended and find it difficult to adjust to the workplace. And then that's their problem, really. What about the C word? Is that appropriate to use in the workplace? And can you imagine it 
being used in the office 10 or 20 years from now? It's not a word that I personally would use, but I've definitely heard it. I have used it, like, in social settings. I'd never use that. It's just not really seen as acceptable. Certainly never use it at work. Usually used about someone. I would have to be really strongly angry to use it. Uh, yeah, I'm not so fond of that. Why? It's vulgar. It can be interpreted the wrong way. Well, I was reading something that my colleague Miriam Meyerhoff, a language and gender expert, we edited a recent handbook together. She points out that there was an attempt to reclaim spinster as a term that was an appropriate and uh, admirable term for a woman who is an independent person. That was the same sort of thing, that you take a term that's been used to denigrate women and put them down and you use it assertively to reclaim it and change people's attitudes. It's... It's a word that I love to use. Now, these are actors and a director that I interviewed for another series called Beyond Kate. I didn't use this part, but we did talk about the use of the C word. <laughs> Do you have to be extremely angry to use it? Not at all. In fact, I made a New Year's resolution to only use it in a positive way. I failed mm. quite fast, but I thought, no, this can be a positive reclaim word. It's a great word. I was a teenager in Hamilton, <coughs> so we use it as a positive term of endearment all the time. GC, yeah. you know, means a good beep. If someone helps you move house... Or like if you're sick and your mate brings you soup, so you're like, oh, what a GC. <laughs> but why bring the C word into everyday language? And how will that change the way we even perceive the word? Very young women these days are deliberately using it to try and detoxify it because the more they use it, the less power it has. Particularly if it's used in new contexts with new associations. That's the way meanings change. So Janet reckons that even a doctor might use this in some instances. And you're talking to somebody for whom that word's going to make more sense than to use something more medical. But oh, I don't know, that's like... I, I you can't imagine that. Being, no, I just cannot. I would see it as being quite unprofessional. If a doctor's a good doctor and they know that the person they're speaking to would not be familiar with a gynaecological or a medically technical term, then it would be perfectly acceptable to use it to, to somebody who you knew would understand that word. Context is all. And also it's used in such a way, it's used like very... It's an intensifier in that context, you know. Do you believe there's any right or wrong way to use it? There's nothing inherently bad about it. But how long does it take for that kind of language Mm -hmm. or our acceptance of words like the C word and the F word to evolve? That's how long is a piece of string. If it's very marked, um, a word that people have a strong reaction to, it could be a very, very long time before it gets detoxified. I was thinking of words for women that would, were used in the past to label women negatively, which over time have got detoxified, or the opposite. Whore, for example, used widely in America um, without causing lots of offence. So that would be an example where in the past, in England in particular, it would cause a lot of offence. But in America, in a new context, it's used you know, almost like a friendly word. So words can change over time can take a very long time, can be very quick. It depends a bit on how offensive they are or how useful they are. Uh, Slang words, for example, if somebody uses a word that other people find interesting and useful, it'll catch on quickly. Uh, The words that spread fastest are words for good and bad. You know, do people still use neat 
or wicked or uh, even older words, um, smashing, you know, mm. fabulous. I mean, these are words that were popular once but now have gone out. So what are the new words for that? You know, they pass into the vocabulary of young people really fast. Are, are younger around. people, I mean, are they always at the forefront of changing vocabulary? Or Generally speaking, looking for innovation and something new. But there are reasons why we find particular words acceptable or unacceptable. I think, you know, you're influenced by the way you were brought up, by um, your age group, which generation you're in, uh, by your social background, your regional background. So all of these factors will influence your attitudes to particular words. So I work for the media. How can the media go about changing the use of language to, you know, consciously step away from gendered language? Mm. I think the media has the opportunity to lead change in in this respect, provided that you are aware of what the norms are that you want to object to, then you can begin to challenge those norms yourself. If you want to introduce new words that you think are more appropriate in a particular context, media usage will certainly catch on much quicker than any other because simply exposure and, of course, people admire certain people in the media who are going to be more influential than others. For example, if you wanted to support the idea that the C word needed to be detoxified, then the use of it on the media would immediately cause a controversy and then that raises the issue for attention and discussion. Thanks, Janet. That was Janet Holmes from the School of Linguistics and Applied Sciences at Victoria University of Wellington and that story was produced by Sonia Sly. Ko tō tato al horihori tenei. He hōtake e pāneki te pūtaio, te taio, me te kaupapa o te ora. I'm Alison Balance and you're with Our Changing World. Now, settle back and enjoy our weekly dose of keeping up with all the kākāpō news. I've just had the privilege of spending a few days on Whenua Hau, Codfish Island, one of the two main kākāpō breeding islands. I got to run around after the very busy kākāpō recovery team, Recording for the podcast series The Kākāpō Files, and we'll hear more of that field audio in later Our Changing World programmes. But tonight, here are a couple of interviews I grabbed just before I left the island at the beginning of the week. First up, Deirdre Verko, who's the operations manager for the Department of Conservation's Kākāpō recovery team, has an update for us. The news is that we've broken the expected target of eggs this year or prediction so we have 160 eggs this year have already laid and we were expecting around about 150 so that's great news of those 72 of them were fertile so had developed now not all of them have made it we have lost some so we've had 14 egg deaths so far but uh, we've also had hatches we've had 21 chicks hatch which is just staggering let's just pause and celebrate that for a minute that's 21 <laughs> little kakapo chicks already and more to come Yes. And, you know, when you think about it, we've only ever had three breeding seasons in which we've had more than 21 chicks. <laughs> so to have 21 chicks hatch this, this early in the season is, is pretty outstanding. So uh, give me some chick news. Who's where and what and why? So it is a long road ahead for all of those chicks, and we can see that. We lost Wa 4 uh, at two days old, so that chick there was quite small and weak right from the start and didn't make it. So we still have 20 chicks alive. So far, they're all looking really, really good. And yeah, we've got a bit of a spread. So we have five of them. The oldest ones are currently in the Dunedin Wildlife Hospital, and they're doing really well there. Uh, we have eight here on Whenua Ho, and this Wednesday, those eight will join the other five in Dunedin. 
and we have seven on Anchor Island. And the great thing about Anchor is that two of those chicks are in nests which we'll keep long term and they seem to be doing well so far. It's very early though. So the chicks here on Whenua Hau and in Dunedin and obviously some of the ones on Anchor are being hand reared so you've got a team of people working almost around the clock doing that haven't you? We have and I think you know it's so true that we just can't do this alone we really need support from others and this year we've got loads of support from others which is fantastic so we've got a team from Auckland Zoo helping us out on both Whenua Ho and Anchor to with the hand rearing and they're working from around six in the morning till well I saw James was still up at 1.30 this morning so it's long days for them um, they're working shifts uh, and the team in Dunedin of course and we've got yeah, just loads of supporters like yourself, Alison, just really getting into this season, which is fantastic. Now, you mentioned that you saw James up at 1.30 this morning, which meant you were also up. So what were you doing last night? Yeah, last night I paid a visit uh, with Andrew to Hawkey's Nest. Uh, we were hoping to find fertility there or some good eggs, but unfortunately it looks like she's got two infertile eggs. So we removed those two and replaced them with two dummy eggs just to keep her sitting on a nest because we hope to give her a chick a bit later on in the season. One of the things that people have asked about is the names of the chicks, and at the moment it sounds like a, a bit of a barcode, so, you know, WA4A, she was the one that died, so WA's fourth egg in the first round of mating, which is the A. How long do those chicks have that name for, and when are you going to start giving some of them proper names? Well, we've actually just started this morning. Oh, wow. So <laughs> we've named the first two chicks, so Waikawa2A, which was the second egg of Waikawa's first clutch this year, was our first, very first chick to hatch and hatched on the 30th of January and that was the first chick in the management history that has ever hatched in January so we've given Waikawa 2A the name Kohitatia which is January and Tifuri 1 came right on the heels of Waikawa 2 and we've given that chick the name Tōmua or to be early, and that's in recognition of the early season of 2019. Well, those are two very beautiful names, and I think you're going to have quite a few more names to find by the end. Would you hazard a guess as to how many chicks you might get, knowing that we'll lose more eggs, knowing that we'll lose more chicks? Yeah, so we've got 20 chicks. We've still got 38 viable eggs, so those are eggs that have been fertile and developing are still alive and may still well hatch and turn into kākopo so I'd never like to hazard a guess but that's looking like quite a healthy number uh, and we'll just have to keep keep on uh, doing our best to make sure that we can keep all of our eggs and chicks alive. You've had a strategy of removing the eggs from females to encourage them to remate so how's that all going? That's going well uh, which is fantastic and a real relief uh, so we have had, on anchor, we've had nine females start their second round of mating. So, you know, that's nine nests that we wouldn't have had had we not followed that strategy this year. We haven't had any mating on anchor for the last two or three nights, so we're all thinking, is there, are there going to be more? Because the first round of matings on anchor was very quick. They all went together. But maybe the second round will be slightly more stretched out over time uh, because the, the periods in which we took them off the nests were a little bit more stretched out over time, if you like. Uh, on Whenua Ho, we've had five females mate again. So, so who's that? So we've had Aranga, Cindy, Esperance, Nora and Solstice. And actually Solstice uh, was a t- potential candidate for artificial insemination today, 
but she mated again last night, so that's great. We'll leave her to it. <laughs> Are you still going to do some more artificial insemination? We will. We'll be concentrating on that for the second round of clutches. Uh, so we have a team here ready to go, and we're really hoping to make a difference with that fertility in the second round because, as you saw, we saw in the first round, it was relatively poor. Probably, I think we're sitting at our third worst season for f- fertility. It's around about 46%, I believe. Uh, so if we can achieve some successful artificial insemination, we really could drive that, that number up, which could be a game changer, but it is a big if. Uh, we've only been successful with artificial insemination once in 2009, well actually th- with three chicks in 2009. So, uh, but we're hoping to see that again this year, fingers crossed. When will you know the results of that? We won't know until the chicks have hatched and we've been able to DNA test them uh, to check which father sired the clutch. But we may get an indication, you know, if these second round clutches come in and they have an increased level of fertility when we check the eggs, we may think, oh, wonder if that was our artificial insemination. But of course it will be not until the proof's in the pudding later on, really. Thanks, Deirdre. That was Kākāpō manager Deirdre Veko. And after catching up with her... I was off to the Portacom, which is the incubator room for many of those kākāpō eggs, to catch up with technical officer and general kākāpō guru, Daryl Eason. Hi Daryl, nice to see you in your little office. Yeah, I'm back here with the eggs again. This is the egg headquarters, what have you got going on today? Today we have two eggs that are externally picked, so that means hatching's imminent within the next day or two. So we've got Nora 2, who will probably hatch today, and Rakiura 1, who's really raced ahead and pipped a little bit before I was expecting. But because it's, it hasn't broken the air cell first, it's just gone straight through the shell, and it'll probably now sit for a couple of days before it hatches. So we've just moved them to the hatching incubators, and we have... Some amount of eggs. <laughs> Daryl is looking around the room at incubators <laughs> full of eggs. <laughs> um, and all the rest of the incubators. I've just removed Sue's second egg, which died yesterday about nine or ten days old. So an egg can be fertile, the embryo can start developing, but the developing embryo can die at any stage. Is that yes. the problem? If they're going to die, they usually die within the first ten days. So there's regularly deaths at about four or five days old or around about eight or nine days old. Um, Sue's eggs, her first two eggs both had the air cells on the wrong end of the egg, so there was something a bit odd about them in the first place. And this one looked pretty normal until yesterday, and then all the network of veins just started looking really unhealthy and starting to drain. Although the embryo was still moving around in the morning, it, it was dead by the evening though. So you've lost a few eggs? So there's a few. There's always a few. I haven't worked out what percentage. It's normally can expect about 18% embryo death a year at that early stage. But on the plus side, Nora too. Nora is one of the females here on Whenuaho, so Nora 1's already hatched, so that's the first Whenuaho chick? Yes, Nora 1 hatched yesterday. And um, how's she doing? Doing really well. And I say she, but we actually have no idea what sex they are. (laughs) (laughs) No, not for a while. We can guess, we can look at the the size of their beak in the first few days, and usually the the males have quite broad beaks, and the females are longer and narrower. 
So have you done the measuring? Done the measuring, but it's so close for Nora 1 that it's a bit uncertain. Okay, so sex undetermined as yet. Yes, so then we might have to wait for about a month to to just watch the chick develop in its weight and size. And I'll look at the beak again around about two weeks old. If it's a bit heavier and a little bit larger, it's more likely to be a male? Yeah, more likely to be, but some males can also be quite small, and so that can fool you. But generally, after three to four weeks, the, the males are really starting to get quite a bit heavier than the females. Got some a number of questions for you. So people who are listening to the Kakapo Files podcast are writing in by email or sending questions on Twitter, and I've got some questions for you. So number one, in 2005, a group of Nelson students visited four Kakapo chicks being hand-reared. Do you know where they are now? Uh, yes, I do. That's Kumi and Yasmin now live on Anchor Island. Kumi mated with Kunini this year, but unfortunately her eggs were infertile. But he was a father in 2016 for, I think, four or five chicks. And Yasmin has produced a clutch of four eggs, but all four were early embryo deaths. She's just mated again, and we are expecting her second nest in a week or two. Pura and Ponamu live on Whenua Ho, and Pura has a an egg that's due to hatch in about three days and she actually has two fertile eggs in the incubator and she was just up the hill last night listening near Morahu booming so I think she's about to mate in the next day or two and Ponamu has her first nest and we haven't seen her eggs yet she didn't come off the nest last night, so hopefully tonight we'll see what she's got. Well, that's fantastic news, and I just have to say I'm incredibly amazed because I can throw a random question like that at you, and you know exactly which birds I was talking about, and without even having to consult anything, you can tell me who's where and what they're doing. You are such a walking kakapo <laughs> encyclopedia, Daryl. It's going to get harder, though, as we get more numbers. Now, another couple of questions. Somebody asked... Are the eggs in larger clutches smaller, and do they decrease in size from the first one laid? Yeah, it's really interesting. The first egg is normally shorter and rounder, and then the middle egg or eggs are usually the two biggest eggs of the clutch, especially wider. And the last egg is usually longer and narrower. So there's a real distinct size and shape difference. And Jim, who laid five eggs... Her fifth egg was absolutely tiny. It was half the size or slightly less than an egg. And also the eggs for new new time mums, the eggs tend to be smaller overall and they take two or three breeding seasons to get up to a, a, a good full-size kakapo egg. And one more question for you. People have been asking after Sirocco. They're wondering if he's part of this breeding season and whether you ever plan to use him for art- artificial insemination. Well, yes, that's really unusual, actually. Sirocco, even though he wants to mate as much as he can on people, we've never been able to collect sperm from him. He's, he's the most difficult bird to collect from. We haven't been able to get anything from him. So the answer for that's a big resounding a no. Big, no, we, we put a fair bit of effort into that several years ago and decided 
that if he couldn't contribute to that role, his, his major role is going to be with advocacy. Which he does extremely well. He does extremely well, yes. Thanks, Daryl. That was Daryl Eason from Doc's Kākāpō Recovery Team. And that's the show. But you can find all the episodes of the Kākāpō Files podcast, as well as the story about language, at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You can sign up for our free weekly email newsletter while you're there. Keep in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook, where we are RNZ Science. Great to have your company, but for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance, Paul Marier. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.